Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nat. I'm very excited to have you here for our more in-depth conversation on Anti-Fragile by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. I think that we started to get into it, realized that it deserved an episode of its own. Absolutely. So we're going to do a little bit of an experiment here, doing a deep dive into this book and hopefully talking about the concepts in a way that will be valuable to the audience, whether or not they have read this fantastic book. Awesome. And yeah, if you haven't read this book, you absolutely need to, as you'll see during this show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Anybody enjoying the, the topics on the show so far will certainly have a lot to gain from this book. And while we're, you know, sitting here, what are we drinking exactly? We are drinking a smoked porter Mm. that I made in my house, fermented in my basement, and now is coming to you. And this is a living beer? It's a living beer. What does that mean? Basically, uh, so it's not pasteurized. Um, So most commercial breweries will pasteurize their beer because they don't want their bottles to explode while they're uh, transporting them. Probably a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. uh, But home brewers tend to not. So it's more similar to like a kombucha but a little higher in alcohol. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, well, we'll try not to have too many of them during the episode here. Yeah. Good luck resisting. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously we're talking today about the book Antifragile. And the central theme of this book is this concept of antifragility, which we've just explained from the introduction to Leb introduces as the opposite to fragility. Another useful way to conceptualize it is some examples he gives from mythology, which I particularly like. Uh, do you want to run through those for people? Uh, yeah, sure. So actually, before we even get into that, I would, something that I find really useful when under, trying to understand anti-fragility, because it is slightly tricky. Uh, it took me a few times reading the book yeah. <laughs> to really get it. But, um, you know, so you have things that are fragile, which basically means that they um, are affected negatively by stressors. So that could be time. It could be any anything unexpected, basically. Uh, then there's things that are robust, which and, and that's kind of what made the concept click for me. Robustness are things that are resistant to uh, negative effects that happen from these stressors. And then you have things that are anti-fragile, which actually benefit when there's a stressor. And that's usually the camp you want to be in. Right. <laughs> um, so, okay. So, yeah, we, there's a few examples. Um, Damocles, he is... Well, actually, you want to give this example? Sure, I, I can talk about it. Yeah. seems like something you know better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, so, so Taleb uses these analogies in the book to explain some of the concepts, right? And he's drawing from mythology because one of the underlying arguments he makes is that a lot of the best wisdom does come from these old myths. Absolutely. And so he tells the story of Damocles, who is dining with... I can't remember who one of the one of the gods, but as he's dining, there's a sword dangling above his head by a horsehair. And so throughout the whole dinner, he is at odds of at any moment having the sword fall and kill him. He's living in an extremely fragile situation. The myth of the phoenix helps us understand robustness. When the phoenix is killed, it turns into ashes and then it is reborn from its ashes. It doesn't come back stronger or weaker, but it's fairly robust to any really bad thing happening to it. And then we have the Hydra, right? So the Hydra in the myth of Hercules or Heracles, however you prefer, demonstrates anti-fragility in that whenever one of its heads is cut off, two grow back. It can still be killed, but in response to most stressors, it becomes stronger. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to, to explain it. Yeah. And, and then he goes on and he applies it to some more topical examples that we can all relate to, right? So things that once you notice them, you'll start to see it more and more around you. Little systems where when a stress is added, it becomes better. The, the easiest one is definitely the human body. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So people who lift weights, right? You're putting a stress on yourself, tend to grow bigger muscles. If you never lift weights, 
you're probably not going to grow any muscles. Yeah. You, you become weaker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and he puts particular <laughs> emphasis on, you know, with the human body, it, it responds to the next potential stressor. So if you're lifting a 100 pound stone, your body will respond by becoming able to lift a 105 or 110 pound yeah. stone. It doesn't just prepare for the same battle. It prepares for the next battle. Yeah. And he particularly contrasts this to human systems where we're usually responding to the last war instead of fighting the next potential one. This was one of the criticisms of the meltdown in Japan, where they had only built the nuclear reactor to withstand the strongest earthquake they had ever seen, instead of the strongest earthquake that could ever happen. And if you also start thinking about the limits of human records and how short of a period of time we actually have records for relative to the age of the earth and how long earthquakes have been going on, that's (laughs) particularly a, a bad scenario to be in. So throughout the book, he's using antifragility in a lot of different ways to explain how we should think about different situations and most importantly, how we can build more antifragility into our own lives and avoid being fragile. And in many ways, this is a response to what he discussed in Black Swan, where he showed how these massive, unpredictable events have a huge impact on human history, human development, and they are always unpredictable. So one of the goals of being more anti-fragile is that you can respond positively to sudden changes in your environment, or at least you can be not entirely wiped out by them. And he gets very quickly into jobs and how this applies to work. And he has a really interesting story that highlights this quite well, how different jobs can be more fragile and more anti-fragile. And so I'll read from the book here. I was in Milan trying to explain anti-fragility to Luca Formenton, my Italian publisher, with great aid from body language and hand gestures. I was there partly for the Moscato dessert wines, partly for a conversation in which the other main speaker was a famous fragilista economist. So, suddenly remembering that I was an author, I presented Luca with the following thought experiment. If I beat up the economist publicly, what would happen to me, other than a publicized trial causing great interest in the new notions of fragilista and antifragilista? You know, this economist had what I call a tete a uh, <laughs> a face that invites you to slap it, <laughs> just like a cannoli invites you to bite into it. <laughs> Luca thought for a second. Well, it's not like he would like me to do it, but it wouldn't hurt book sales. Nothing I can do as an author that makes it to the front page of Corriere de la Serra would be detrimental for my book. Almost no scandal would hurt an artist or writer. Now, let's say I were a mid-level executive employee of some corporation listed on the London Stock Exchange, the sort who never take chances by dressing down, always wearing a suit and tie, even on the beach. (laughs) What would happen to me if I attacked the Fragilista? My firing and arrest record would plague me forever. I would be the total victim of informational anti-fragility, but someone earning close to minimum wage, say a construction worker or a taxi driver, does not overly depend on his reputation and is free to have his own opinions. Yeah, we were actually talking about this a little while ago about how Nat in his uh, current free life, right, is you're very much anti-fragile right now in terms of the opinions that that you can share. Um, You know, I like this blog post that you very recently published. Uh, I think it was called You Can't Say That Because You're White. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think that actually very much demonstrates this point, because if you work at any, let's say, Fortune 500 company and you publish that blog post, most people probably won't care, but someone would would possibly report it to HR and... Uh, you know, you very likely get fired and <laughs> that would be that. And then that would plague you for, you know, for a long time. Uh, Nat can publish it. And, you know, whether or not you agree with the point, I think it's a, it's an article that w- will get shared and has been getting shared quite a bit. And all of that attention helps you, whether the person likes the article or it doesn't. Exactly. I mean, it all helps you. So even talking about the mechanics of how Facebook works, for example, 
Facebook puts something in people's news feeds based on the engagement that it is getting. It looks at the comments and the positive or negative likes, and then it promotes it more. And this is why we see so much outrage-related material spreading, right? I mean, another good example we were talking about before is Milo, however we pronounce his last name. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) Good luck. But, you know, Sorry, Milo. Sorry, Milo. Yeah, if you're listening. (laughs) But him going to Berkeley to speak about his book and then the students rioting and throwing a fit over it certainly massively increased his book sales. It's not like that was bad for him. It probably gave him more book sales than if he had been allowed to speak. Right. I think the term for this is uh, the Streisand effect, where Barbara Streisand had some embarrassing picture of her go up on the Internet. And then one of her lawyers thought that they could file a complaint to have her picture removed from the Internet. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, in doing this, they made the picture infinitely more popular, (laughs) so much so that there is an effect named for it now. I I mean, I had this happen to me last week, actually, as well, because I wrote that article about Soylent. And a bunch of the people who really like Soylent found it and they posted it on Reddit and in the Soylent discussion forums and they were arguing about it and fighting over it. And of course, them fighting over it drove significantly more traffic to it. And it's an article that was not ranking for anything on Google, but now it's at least when I'm recording this, it was number two on Google for is Soylent healthy? Wow. And that happened in a week because these people who hated the article (laughs) were sharing it and getting pissed about it. (laughs) Yep. So I think, you know, that's a really good example. And and then we've got Trump. Yeah, right. Exactly. He's the ultimate (laughs) of anti-fragility. Yeah. And I think it's if you think about it, um, someone like, you know, Milo or even Trump, right, they they very, very strongly appeal to a, a niche audience. Right. But to reach that audience where you don't there's no real identifier of who that audience is that you can just go into Facebook or Google and target necessarily. But if you're basically you have to get into the biggest channels that you possibly can. So CNN or places like that or, you know, just having everybody talking about it online so you can reach everyone. And then your sort of small niche of people who are going to fully agree with you, buy your book, you know, do all the things you want them to do as an author, they'll see you. And that's how you get sort of that top of funnel from, you know, if you think about it more from a marketing perspective uh, by generating that controversy. But to take advantage of it, you have to be willing to be controversial which is an interesting, maybe it's a problem or just a tendency where I think people are very uncomfortable with that idea. Oh, absolutely. Where there's this notion that you need to please everyone, you need to be liked. And you do if you're in a fragile position, like, you know, where if you have an employer, you probably want to keep the food on your table coming. So uh, it's understandable that, you know, someone like that may not want to post something that controversial, because in their case, they're definitely in that fragile position where, they're going to be in trouble if something something too controversial comes up, like what Taleb is suggesting about punching the fragilista in the face. <laughs> That's probably not going to work too well if you punch someone you disagree with at work. Yeah. <laughs> but as an author, you're in a good good position if you can generate that kind of controversy. And it's, I mean, one interesting way to think about this too is that depending on the fragility of your work, you have a lot more freedom. And I think something that can be very demoralizing, even depression-inducing for people, is a sense of their freedom being limited. And there's definitely a correlation here between fragile work and fragile pursuits and restricting of freedom. And so then maybe an interesting question is, like, how do you, if you're in a particularly fragile type of work environment, right, how do you move towards something less fragile? Yeah, that's interesting because... In the past couple of years, I've been working, you know, with a large company and I've been seeing how people in the company who have like sort of this reputation for being blunt and saying what's on their mind are almost in this anti-fragile position where like 
nobody gets mad at them if they say something that's somewhat controversial because they've kind of set that expectation a little bit. Yeah. Um, whereas if somebody who doesn't have that reputation says something like that, you know, there would be some kind of controversy. So it's almost like by making your reputation that you are, you know, uh, a little more, let's say, blunt. You're in that anti-fragile position of where, you know, nothing you say is going to be used against you, but you could benefit from it. Uh, but there's definitely a limit in a corporate environment for sure. Yeah, I would say the freelancers have by far the most uh, most freedom in that sense. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if you have some comfort and familiarity with freelancing or working for yourself, doing anything entrepreneurial, that's a much less fragile position to be in. Absolutely. And I think it also applies to entrepreneurs as well who who raise venture capital, right? So venture capital is obviously a necessary necessary thing for many types of businesses. But if you think about it from the lens of fragility versus anti-fragility, you're definitely in a more fragile uh, situation. Whereas if you're so if you're an entrepreneur who's not raised any money from outside investors and you know you own 100 percent of the business and things go the way that you know you hope that they go in the business and it grows, that's awesome, right? You own 100 percent of the thing. But if it doesn't go the way you expect it to, and maybe you know you expect it to be a five hundred thousand dollar a year business, and it turns out it's only fifty thousand dollar a year business. But because it's your business, that's fine. It's still fifty thousand dollars on the side. You know that's great. Yeah. It's not bad. Um, you don't have to work on it full time necessarily. You can scale it back, and maybe it's twenty five thousand dollars a year. But it's your business. So you have full control. If you raise venture capital and your assumption proves to be wrong, your business is just going to shut down. Like you're not going to have that side income or you know that full business. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't go raise venture capital if your business absolutely requires it. Uh, but that's a lens to look at that decision and you know whether it makes you more fragile or anti-fragile. Well, it's a really good example too of these large risks that we sometimes expose us to or expose ourselves to that create fragility that we completely ignore, right? Yeah. The the negative black swans, which he talks about a lot more in Black Swan, but that idea and what he calls the turkey problem is definitely really relevant here. And mitigating turkey problems is a big part of anti-fragility. So let me read from the book again on turkey problem. A turkey is fed for a thousand days by a butcher. Every day confirms to its staff of analysts that the butchers love turkeys with increased statistical confidence. The butcher will keep feeding the turkey until a few days before Thanksgiving, Then comes that day when it is really not a very good idea to be a turkey. (laughs) So with the butcher surprising it, the turkey will have a revision of belief, right when its confidence in the statement that the butcher loves turkey is maximal, and it is very quiet and soothingly predictable in the life of the turkey. This example builds on an adaptation of a metaphor by Bertrand Russell. The key here is that such a surprise will be a black swan event, but just for the turkey, not for the butcher powerful yeah that is powerful stuff <laughs> i mean it's one of those it's one of those stories and those examples where once you hear it and you think about it not only do you start to see where that might be happening in your life but you start to see where it has happened in your life before i mean for me just a couple of weeks ago while i was uh sort of on vacation like my site got hacked mm, yeah. and that was not something i ever expected to happen yep. and it, i mean they actually they hacked into the database for all of my sites and I was only able to save my personal site, the main site. All of the rest of them have just been completely destroyed for the most part. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I mean, to my fault, right, I didn't take security seriously. I never expected that hacking would become a problem on a site like this. 
And so literally every day I got a little more confident, like, oh, I would never get hacked. Oh, that would happen. That would, no, 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 no. And then sure enough, you know, one day somebody emails me and says, hey, your site is like redirecting people to these scammy ads and things. Mm. And then it was like a mad dash to try to salvage what I could before everything got destroyed. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah but that's a perfect funny. example, right? You never expect yeah. something like that to happen to you yeah. until it does. But then, and this is the important site. In hindsight, it seems obvious. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Honestly, for me, the event I always think about is 08, like the financial crisis. Yeah. And I think it's, I think for a lot of us who kind of grew up in that time, like, at least for me, I connect everything Taleb talks about to that, I think most strongly. And I think when you hear things like, oh, housing prices always go up or anything like that in any industry, right? Or it doesn't even have to be business related. It could be anything related to the human body as well. Anytime somebody makes a blanket statement like that, you start thinking about the turkey problem, you know, and you're like, well, I don't want to be the turkey in this situation. Exactly. Bitcoin always goes up. Yeah, Bitcoin always goes up or uh, (laughs) the internet has never gone down, right? I mean, there's some really weird fringe stuff. Yeah, Yeah, or like... um, No invasions on US soil. Exactly, yeah, things like that, right? So the the turkey problem is, is... is powerful. I think in one that especially that example of, you know, if you think about how statistical confidence is calculated, the more sort of so that 999 days in, it's at the highest possible uh confidence value. Exactly. To yeah. be fair, that turkey had a p value of what yeah. 0.001, yeah. right? That's really high statistical confidence yeah. that would get published in Nature and yep. then the next day it'd be very surprised. Yeah, and I think um, you know, I think we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but you and I, I think, already are a little suspicious anytime studies come out saying something, but uh, maybe not everybody is. So that's definitely something to think about. Well, he, he makes a good distinction here, too, in that some things are more prone to black swan events than others. And he makes this distinction between extremistan and mediocristan, where you can imagine certain things belonging to mediocristan, a sort of imaginary world or place where there's a very limited range of differences. So human height. Is the typical example where the shortest person, you know, assuming that they're not uh, genetically impaired in height or something is probably going to be, you know, what, four feet. And then the tallest person will be eight foot something, nine foot something. It's a fairly limited range. And if you have a thousand people in a line and you add one person to the sample, the average height is not going to move very much. There's not going to be someone who's a thousand feet tall. Exactly. Comes in. A thousand feet tall or one inch tall. Yeah. Whereas with wealth or book sales or website traffic, a single addition to the sample size or to the sample can completely change the average and everything else, right? Bill Gates walks into a bar. Me, you, a deal, and a couple other people that we know (laughs) in the room. And then Bill Gates walks in, the average wealth just is over a billion dollars per person. Yeah, right. right. (laughs) Exactly. And so what what, what Taleb is saying with that is that in those extremist stand cases, you're more vulnerable to these major sudden changes, right? They're more prone to these huge unexpected uh, variables, right? And those are the areas where you have to be like extra careful of these sudden massive changes happening. So then the interesting question is where in your own life could you possibly be being a turkey? I think we alluded to it a bit with 08 and with the job market, but that's definitely a big one where for a lot of people up until 08, they assumed that their careers were really safe. And I know people, I think you know people too, I'm sure, who, you know, maybe older family friends who got laid off during that and have still found it very hard to get back in, right? Like you assumed that, okay, the company's going to take care of you and you're going to have this. But then if you weren't able to thrive beyond that company and then you get laid off in a sudden financial crash, you're in trouble. Same thing with investments. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I mean, I think there's a lot on this one where, you know, even if you think about like automation, for example, Mm. 
you know, like right now your skill might be highly valued and I'm not of the belief that everything can be automated, that, you know, humans are completely replaceable by computers, but uh, there are certainly fields where it makes a lot of sense and it will happen. But a lot of people, especially older folks, you know, I've seen do not necessarily recognize that threat. And in those cases, they're the turkeys, right, in the situation or could become the turkeys in that situation. Um, I think taking back to college, too, I remember, you know, there were a few uh, friends I had in the engineering program who might view, you know, might have viewed like, okay, well, we have a Carnegie Mellon engineering degree. That's going to guarantee us a job, right? It doesn't matter what else you're doing or what else other skills you're working on. Or I had a 4.0 GPA, you know, that's going to guarantee me a job. And that might be a very strongly held belief for you because in high school that got you into a great college and, you know, you've kind of seen that happen, but that's not necessarily true, especially, you know, I think increasingly so it's becoming much more of a skill driven economy as opposed to a credential only economy. Well, that was Charlie Owen's whole story that he talked about when he came on. It's a great episode. It's a good episode. Yeah. (laughs) Where he said, yeah, you know, he graduated with basically a perfect GPA, good major and just couldn't get any jobs. Right. And so that was why he had to start reaching out to people to work for free initially because there were literally no other options. And uh, Taylor Pearson, also a guest on the show, has a really good article titled Welcome to Extremistan, Don't Be a Turkey, Mm. which talks a lot about this job choice issue and, you know, building up tangential skills so that you can, you know, at least make yourself robust to sudden massive changes in the job market and not overly relying on just one area, allowing yourself to be a little bit more diverse, even though it might seem like, oh, well, if I'm not specialized, I won't be valuable, right? Mm -hmm. But it actually makes you way safer to these sudden changes. And I mean, related to the big, like crazy changes too that we've been talking about is some of the benefit of small changes, and this is similar to what we talked about in the beginning with the Hydra, where the Hydra gets one head cut off to grow back. It actually becomes stronger in response to these little changes and little stresses. And Taleb talks a lot in the book about this idea of hormesis and the benefit of small stressors and you know how you can use that in your own life. So let's, let's hop into that too. And I'll, I'll read from the book again. Let us call mithridatization the result of an exposure to a small dose of a substance that, over time, makes one immune to additional larger quantities of it. It is the sort of approach used in vaccination and allergy medicine. It is not quite anti-fragility, still at the more modest level of robustness, but we are on our way. And we already have a hint that perhaps being deprived of poison makes us fragile and that the road to robustification starts with a modicum of harm. Now consider a case when the poisonous substance in some dose makes you better off overall, one step up from robustness. Hormesis, a word coined by pharmacologists, is when a small dose of a harmful substance is actually beneficial for the organism, acting as medicine. A little bit of an otherwise offending substance, not too much, acts to benefit the organism and make it better overall as it triggers some overreaction. This was not interpreted at the time in the sense of gains from harm, so much as harm is dose-dependent or medicine is dose-dependent. The interest to scientists has been in the non-linearity of the dose response. So here he's introducing this idea, right, hormesis, where in some cases, doing a little bit of harm to a living thing actually makes it stronger. We've already talked about weightlifting, I think, is a perfect example. In the moment, you're certainly making yourself weaker. You're stressing yourself. As anyone who's ever tried to walk up the stairs after doing squats. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Or after a long run. (laughs) Yeah, but in response, your body becomes stronger. Right. It's not like a car where if you drive it for a thousand miles, it, you know, a car doesn't get better after being driven. It's solely getting worn down. But if you run, okay, not a thousand miles, but (laughs) a few miles, you become better at running. And so then the question is kind of what are 
other areas where a little bit of stress is a good thing. I've uh, last kind of couple of years have been uh, doing, you know, started like a fasting habit. I know mm-hmm. you do as well. Um, and I find that to be really, really helpful. And I'm not sure about all the science behind fasting or not. Um, I haven't looked into it that much. But I know for me personally, from a psychological standpoint, I find that uh, like, so I travel a ton for work. And uh, a lot of times you don't get access to good food necessarily on, on an airplane or in an airport. And I actually now kind of turn those into fasting days. And psychologically, it makes me a lot less panicked about you know, oh, I'm missing a meal, just even if it's a busy day, or, you know, I'm just not in a place where there's good food that I want to eat. I'm not like necessarily thinking about it. And I found that even it makes you more, this is probably more on the robust camp, but you're definitely robust to like hunger pangs. Yeah, as well. Like, I know before I started fasting, if I my stomach was growling, there's definitely that alarm clock in your head of like, hey, it's time to eat, man, hurry up. Um, But now you get those, you just kind of like observe them. You're like, okay, yeah, you're hungry, it'll go away. If you don't eat, if you eat, great, that's awesome. But now you can be smart with your choice. And I know you, you've you gone deep into the science of fasting, so I'll let you uh, continue on that. Well, I, I mean, building off what you just said, if anybody listening to this, if you get hangry, you know, if you've gone for an hour or two without food and you start to get annoyed and irritable, that's a sign that your body has sort of forgotten how to go without food. And you should probably, okay, you know, talk to your doctor. Don't be stupid. Please don't die. But it would be beneficial to try a three or a five day water fast and to really understand. Like start with 24 hours. Many people, I feel like many, many, many people we know, or even that we don't know, have never gone 24 hours without eating in their entire life. Like, I'm not saying everybody in the world, there are people who go, you know, yeah. a lot longer than that. But if you live in the Western world, you're, there's a lot, a lot of people, including me up until very, you know, not that long ago, who have never, who had not gone 24 hours without food. And I'm sure most people were raised with their parents saying, okay, you need to eat three square meals a day, right? You need to make sure you don't get hungry. And it's simply not true, right? Not only do you not need to eat three meals a day, it's actually good for you to do a degree of intermittent fasting, right? This is a whole nother podcast. It it is. (laughs) (laughs) We'll, We'll try to link to some of the research, right? But I mean, there's very, very few things that have been strongly reproducibly demonstrated to increase longevity and health. And fasting is one of them. Yeah. But so few people do it. And if you look at a lot of the research on like, especially being overweight or not being able to process glucose properly, one of the leading theories is that by being overfed, not in quantity, but in frequency, Mm. we've lose the ability to, you know, again, like process our own fat Mm. as energy, right? There's the whole purpose of it, which is exactly (laughs) it's why it's there. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, fasting is a perfect example, right? The hermetic response is amazing, but there's a lot of others. I mean, even not health related forest fires. Or a good one where if you occasionally allow small burns to happen, controlled burns where you're not letting it go too crazy, but you're getting rid of the brush that prevents the really, really bad big forest fires later. It makes the forest stronger. Income is another really good one where if you have um, if you're used to, let's say, for 30 years getting the exact not maybe not the exact same paycheck, but getting a steady paycheck. You are and then let's say you get, you know, laid off because of financial crisis, something totally not your fault you are not used to that kind of stress, right? So whereas if you have a freelancer who one month makes $10,000 and another month makes $1,000, they're kind of used to that sort of saving habit because they sort of have had this situation happen before where their income varies. So they're not going to go spend all $10,000 that they go make because they know the next month might not be the same way. So having that kind of stressor is, I think, very, very beneficial. Yeah, that's something I've noticed with my life where I'll make most of my money within maybe three or four months of the year. 
but I'll usually spend like it's not one of those months, right? So then yeah. when the good months happen, you don't just go out and burn all of it. You you end up saving it because you know like, okay, times may not be yeah, as good in future months. Yeah. The feast and famine, yep. Yeah. I mean, I think another good one he mentions is light distraction. Mm. So anybody here who does creative work or like writing, programming, art, you have probably found that some form of distraction helps you focus mm. where, you know, for me, maybe it's writing in cafes, yep. especially yeah. if they're speaking a different language. Oh. That's particularly helpful because then you cannot really latch on to what they're saying. A good similar hack is go to Spotify and find music in a different language too. I find that that helps a lot. I have a, there's a, like a French jazz playlist I follow on Spotify. (laughs) That's like, I use as writing music because I don't understand French. I don't speak French at all. And so to me, yeah, that part of your brain doesn't latch onto it. Whereas if I listen to music in English that has lyrics, I find it very hard to write. Uh, and same thing with Spanish, because I speak a little bit of Spanish and, and can write and read a little bit in Spanish. So you connect to certain words right. and it's hard to focus on both of those at the same time. But yeah, having the different language, I think helps a lot. Well, and speaking of learning languages, he uses that in his example too. And if you really get into a lot of the language learning theory, this is kind of the main argument for how to learn them quickly is that you need to be stressed. You need to be trying to be understood like with other people. And when you do that, you learn really fast. Yep. It's amazing how fast you can learn yeah, a language. Where the bathroom is in a different language and you really need to go then... Yeah. you'll figure it out (laughs) i I think the example he uses is getting thrown in a russian prison like in in a gulag you will learn russian very quickly (laughs) or uh going out to the bar and trying to pick up locals without knowing any of the language yes it's true (laughs) so yeah stress is good i mean even radio signals right the reason there is static on a radio is that the static helps the signal come through something about those little variations help the signal become stronger and get picked up easier yep. right a little bit of uh, distraction or stress in the system amplifies it exactly and i think we talked a little bit about this example last time but being in jobs where you kind of have that feedback mechanism so someone's giving you sort of accurate feedback if you're a freelancer you're kind of like that that would be the market or your client or whoever that is Whereas, you know, a lot of times more traditional jobs, you you don't quite have that same feedback loop. And that feedback loop of negative criticism or missing a sale or someone telling you your work was subpar, yeah, it hurts in the moment. Certainly a small stressor, but I think long term gives you that sort of direction and incentive to, to improve and get better. Well, it's that whole fail early, fail often ethos of Silicon Valley, right? As long as you don't overly respect failure to the point where it's a good thing. (laughs) But when you recognize that certain small failures are amazing data points for your own improvement, right, then you can take full advantage of them. If there isn't something, you know, kind of like bad happening to you regularly, you have no reason to improve. (laughs) It's it's a good little bit of stress, right? Like even competition. If you're not competing with anything, you're not going to be as driven to be your best, right? And okay, there's definitely an argument to be made that, well, what if you just want to hang out and chill and not be super stressed and like that's definitely a good point yeah. but if you do want to really excel cre- even creating your own stressors can be helpful oh and i think that's key i think we live um and this is something Taleb kind of sprinkles throughout the book but we kind of live in an environment where a lot of the the stressors have been taken away right i mean and that's not necessarily a bad thing like i'm not criticizing that but you know we live in an environment where we can get three meals a day without not a ton of difficulty in america we live in an environment where we're not running away from saber-toothed tigers, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, it, we're, we're okay not having those stressors. Yeah, yeah. We're good with that, right? But um, to a certain extent, your body was not created with understanding that you don't have those stressors anymore. So right. to an extent, and this might be diving, you know, a little away from Taleb, but I think to an extent, our like human psychology needs stressors. Mm. Um, you know, it's possible. It is possible. And 
it has happened to a lot of people to get kind of too comfortable and you just sort of kind of fall into lack of purpose. This is very tangential. That's what we, that's what we do. In the podcast, <laughs> that's right? true. That's, yeah. well, especially us. Yeah. <laughs> well, but because uh, this is tying back to something we were talking about before it's before the episode started. But I wonder if that is where some of the really rabid social justice warrior anger fighting protesting stuff comes from where psychologically when you have no real conflicts in your life you grew up in this upper middle class family you're going to an amazing school you've never really been challenged or had to engage in any kind of like even tribal warfare type you seek it out Mm. that there is some underlying psychological need for conflict as a human and when we're not getting that challenge in our daily lives and that need to survive then we create it for ourselves through these other conflicts. Yeah, I mean, anybody who's ever played a sport or has been, I mean, I even think as a founder too, sometimes you, you're you in sort of that us versus them mentality uh, in that situation as well. So anyone who's ever played a sport or you know anything like that, there's a rush that like, I don't know where else you get that. And there is something about our psychology. And, you know, I'm not a psychologist, not pretending to be one, but there's something just from personal experience, right? That you feel when you're in that type of situation that, I mean, I don't know where else you get that feeling. Um, It's a great feeling, you know, just to be in that sort of the the thick of that competition and that sort of us versus them mentality. And obviously that has to be tempered, you know, in the world we live in, obviously, but there, there's probably something in our just psyche that needs that sort of competition. And okay, I mean, this, I'm sure this will piss people off, but probably even more so for men, right? Yeah, I, I think that. I don't, I don't think that's, <laughs> that shouldn't be controversial. It shouldn't be controversial. No. <laughs> be controversial. But, yeah, I mean, I think that especially for you know men, if you go for your whole life like not really engaging in any kind of conflict through yeah. sports or whatever, that has to be. I don't know if damaging is the right word, but I think that there is some underlying... Or you might be suppressing something. Yeah, you might be suppressing yeah. something, right? That will come out in other ways. Yeah. And we're not we're not advocating people go like get Start fights at bar bars fights. <laughs> That's not what we're saying. We're just saying that uh, then there's something deep inside humans that likes conflict and competition and... and stress. And stress. Hormesis. Yep. The beneficial stressors. Exactly. Beneficial stressors, which flows nicely into the next topic related to that, which is the mistaken response to these stressors, which we've already been talking about a bit, the naive intervention, right? So trying to remove all stressors and iatrogenics, right? Which is like harm by the healer. So I'll read from the book again. Consider this need to do something. He's talking about the need whenever there's a problem to do something about it through an illustrative example. I see that all the time. In all the time. Business, politics. Well, we'll everything. save the examples for after. Yeah. <laughs> in the 1930s, 389 children were presented to New York City doctors. 174 of them were recommended tonsillectomies. The remaining 215 children were again presented to doctors, and 99 were said to need the surgery. When the remaining 116 children were shown to yet a third set of doctors, 52 were recommended the surgery. Note that there is morbidity in 2-4% to of the cases, today, not then, as the risks of surgery were very bad at the time, and that a death occurs in about every 15,000 such operations, and you get an idea about the break-even point between medical gains and detriment. This story allows us to witness probabilistic homicide at work. Every child who undergoes an unnecessary operation has a shortening of her life expectancy. This example not only gives us an idea of harm done by those who intervene, but worse, it illustrates the lack of awareness of the need to look for a break-even point between benefits and harm. Let us call this urge to help naive interventionism, and we need to examine its costs. 
it's it's pretty interesting when you think about it. There's a lot of cases like this where the desire to intervene has caused more harm than good. I mean, most medicine until you know the last fifty hundred years was it's pretty much as dangerous to go to the doctor as it was to do nothing. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> if not more dangerous, it's not more dangerous, dangerous. right? Th- think of childbirth. Yeah. Before they understood all of the hand washing stuff, the child mortality was extremely high. It was probably more dangerous to give birth in a hospital than at home. Yeah. It was, cer- it was yeah. certainly you know close to as risky. Yeah. I kind of view. Uh, this whole section from Taleb is very similar to that quote that almost like the uh, the, the road to, to hell is paved with good intentions, where it's a lot of times these interventions are not coming from a bad place. You know, people want to help. They want to improve something. They want to fix the problem. But the naive part is totally right. You yeah. know, and there's a lot of times, not a lot of times, most of the time, it seems that the intervention is almost worse than the uh, than the actual problem that they're trying to solve. Well, it's like the the soccer mom criticism, right? Where if you never let your kid fall over or get hurt or, you know, solve their own problems, they'll never learn how to do it on their own. And if you always intervene with your body and prevent it from doing any kind of suffering, then it never learns to handle that harm itself, yep. right? He, he gives the good example of uh, swelling in response to an injury and how I guess he went to the doctor for something and they were trying to ice the swelling to reduce it. And then he, of course, being Taleb, went home and looked it up and there's really <laughs> nothing to back up the need to ice something swelling. It's just something that doctors do to do something. And of course, that's what the incentive is too, right? Exactly. Like nobody, I mean, if you go to a doctor and they say do nothing and then you die, they will get sued. Absolutely. But if you go to the doctor and they do something and then you die, it's like, oh, well, at least they tried, right? Exactly. So it's uh, it's they are actually anti-fragile in that scenario. But you are not. You are not. <laughs> the doctor is much doctor safer is. than you are. Yeah. yeah. So the doctor is basically taking an action where, you know, if by some chance their intervention works, it's awesome. If it doesn't work, they have no downside. Exactly. <laughs> so. Well, I, I think an interesting example that's been coming out recently is with shoulder surgeries. I'm not familiar with this. Yeah, I guess a lot of people who developed shoulder injuries from sports and other activities when they were younger, it used to be something where you would go to a doctor eventually, and then you would do some shoulder surgery to repair the damage. Now it turns out that you can also repair the damage just by hanging from a bar for a few minutes a day, and it recovers remarkably quickly. But that's not something that, you know, a doctor would ever <laughs> prescribe. <laughs> yeah. Right. And there, there's just this desire to like fix something by drugs and by surgery right. instead of by other means. You could tie it to so many things, but like yeah. diet and exercise as well. It's like how many conditions are fixable? Uh, you know, there are some acute conditions, right, where you absolutely need drugs or you might need surgery. And certainly, I don't think even Taleb is advocating that you don't take those drugs in those scenarios. But I think there's a lot of things, you know, maybe more uh, things that might be like cholesterol or blood pressure or things like that, where you can get into the whole marker versus condition issue as well. But even if, let's say, you take those things as fact, lifestyle may improve those things differently than taking a blood pressure pill. Well, I think cholesterol is a perfect example of it because for a long time, the concerning threshold for cholesterol had been going lower and lower and lower and the level at which they would prescribe statins was going higher and higher and higher Mm -hmm. and then we've been starting to see a lot of the problems with statins and how they are actually a pretty dangerous drug as well and so now we're thankfully starting to see a movement away from that and even from believing that cholesterol is a negative indicator of health right it turns out that that's only true when it's combined with like a very high refined carbohydrate diet Hmm. if you don't have that in the picture people can have a high cholesterol and be totally fine which explains why you've got these crazy areas like Sardinia and Italy where they're eating, you know, pork and drinking wine and have crazy high cholesterols, but they're totally fine. They're totally healthy. And when you look at this one indicator in isolation, there's this desire to do something. And I mean, unfortunately, you know, it's like 
people sometimes trust authorities too much. Yeah, and I think also taking out of health for for a minute, like anytime you kind of have a metric, it becomes that sort of becomes what you optimize for. So, you know, I know in a lot of like lead driven businesses, for example, they're not great necessarily at, at tracking through the conversion rate of the lead, yeah. but they know that, hey, more leads equals more money. Right. But they don't necessarily know like what types of leads or if you, there's ways to cut that differently uh, or define a lead maybe a little more tight, uh, tightly than they, they currently do. But then when you're starting to judge like salespeople on leads, uh, that's, of course, what they're going to optimize for. And there's a funny story. Actually, last week I was in uh, or not last week. Now it's been a couple of weeks. I was in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're staying at a resort, sometimes they want you to take like a tour of the resort. And in exchange, they give you like, you know, a hundred dollar gift card or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I was there with a couple of friends and we were asked by one of the check-in people if we want to take the tour. Now, as we're filling out this form for the tour, you know, we got $100 off of uh, some things on the resort. So it was awesome. Why would we not do it? 30 minutes of work and we're on vacation. So why not? Uh, Free drinks, basically. (laughs) Um, So as we are filling out this form, we see on the the form, it says you have to be 30 or in a marriage to be taking this tour because they probably identified that, you know, unless you're over 30, you're probably not going to buy this timeshare. Or if you are uh, married, maybe you'll buy the timeshare, for example. So that's one of the requirements. But this saleswoman was definitely only like being compensated based on the number of leads she delivered. So when we brought that up, she was like, oh, don't don't worry about it. They won't check your ID when you go in to take the tour. And so for the company, that was totally like an unnecessary, like basically they're not getting the value that they thought they were going to get out of it. And yeah, and so from from that standpoint, they're just optimizing for the top line number of leads and not actually who's buying the timeshare, which is ultimately what they care about. So by having the metric there, I think it actually encourages this naive interventionism, you know, because that's what you just start optimizing. You start optimizing on that small thing. Yeah, exactly. Even though that's not the full system, right? Like going back to health, like you're op- you should be optimizing for the health of the patient, not the blood pressure metric, yeah, exactly. right? Like, so it, I think when you have a number there, it Yes, you want to quantify stuff. I, I do believe data is valuable, but there are a lot of times where having data, but it's not a complete definition of the system is actually harmful. I used to work for a company where everyone was evaluated on a single metric. Mm. And it, and so I, I mean, I was kind of a dick about it, but I would sort of <laughs> point out how easy it was to game that metric just by playing with different things. Mm. And, and also how easy it was for one person to take somebody else's. Oh, yeah. Because it was all based on... It doesn't like, help the company at the end of the no, day. No, it doesn't help the company at all. <laughs> but when you're incentivizing individual employees yeah. on these certain conversions, and, you know, so if I was doing content marketing and somebody was doing affiliate marketing, and if I could repixel the people who came in from the affiliates, <laughs> right now I look awesome. Yeah. And, you the know, guy's wondering what happened. Yeah, exactly. The guy's wondering, yeah. it's like, oh, how come affiliate marketing isn't working, right? <laughs> but uh, something a friend told me about that is a really good solution for that is this idea of like paired metrics where you never track one metric in isolation you always track it against something else so you might have you know for a site it's going to be traffic and sales conversion rate because you don't just want tons of crappy traffic and you also don't want an amazing conversion rate no traffic or for uh, a good example with health might be like healthy diet and level of activity Mm. because if you have amazing level of activity but a terrible diet you're still gonna be bad and if you have an amazing diet and no activity you're still gonna be in bad situation too right like it's never simple enough to just isolate one thing um but i mean going back to the more like specific naive intervention one example he gives that i like a lot is the adhd example were you ever tested for adhd when you were a kid i was never tested i definitely should have been i like 
I, I ended up in the principal's office like a number of times during elementary school. I was like very disobedient yep. student. I was never good in classes. I kind of would like, the only reason I ended up getting into good schools, I think, was that I was okay at cramming at the very last second and then just throwing it out there. But like, I could never pay attention to classes. I just yeah, wanted same. to go home and play World of Warcraft <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> but I, uh, my teachers recommended it to my, my parents uh, when I was younger, but I was very lucky that my parents did not take me to take that test um so i never got put on any medicine for it but I, you know you think about all the people that have been put on medicine for it and i, I don't know you there's no wonder that you would have a hard time focusing if you're a young person who's being expected to sit down for eight hours a day and pay attention to somebody who in many cases doesn't like their job and is not doing a gripping job of it themselves right, right. of course you're not going to be able to focus like again especially for young men like you should be out running around and killing things you shouldn't be like sitting down and being expected to like not misbehave at all right when that says should be he's talking about what your biology wants you to do yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i appreciate the clarification yeah. Uh, but yeah it's it, it that is a great example of naive intervention where or he would also call it the procrustean bed problem where instead of fixing the underlying cause of it which is in this case a school system that is you know very outdated and yep. expects people to just sit down and behave and follow orders yep. instead of fixing that we're trying to fix the children right. by giving them <laughs> drugs that make them fit that system yeah. right if if the biology you know it, it's kind of like this idea if if the map doesn't match the terrain the map is wrong. It's not the terrain is wrong, right? right? <laughs> it's not that the kids are messed up because they can't pay attention right. in the system. The system is obviously messed up, right? Exactly. If you've got all of these kids who can't focus yeah. and who need, and, and I agree, there's definitely a problem here from social media, from television, from like being told to being told to care about things they don't care about. Like all of that just creates this Lollapalooza effect yeah. where obviously you're going to have these issues and the solution isn't drugs. The yeah. solution is like something else, especially when you consider that it's not, it's not like aspirin, right? It's amphetamine. Right. <laughs> yeah. This is, it's very close to meth. Right. It is. And you're going to give that to actual drug. Like, yeah. It's I mean, a, not that aspirin is not a drug, but this is a drug drug. Like this is at that level. And you get very addicted to it. And you know, anybody who's listening to this and saying, Oh, Nat and Neil, like, no, I need my Adderall to focus. It's sort of like, well, of course you do. Because if you've been taking it for a long time, you have lost the ability to focus without it. And this is another example where that kind of naive intervention actually makes things worse. Because you may have kids who would be amazing in these other areas where they allowed to explore them and explore and learn in their own way. But by giving them the drugs, forcing them into the system, they have lost the ability Absolutely. to go do that. And actually, can we go a little deeper into, yeah, the, into this area? Because like so much of what I do now, and I feel like so many entrepreneurs actually these days they're finding all the opportunities at the intersections of different things. And, you know, people always say for ADHD, it's like, you can't focus, right? right? But I actually find that like, all the interesting things, not all the interesting things. I mean, there is value in going super deep into one thing. And, you know, I think that is great for a certain type of person, but it's not a one size fits all earth, right? Like, I think we're all kind of different. I think there's a whole lot of interesting stuff at the intersections of different areas. And someone may look at, I mean, you know, you're on my email newsletter, right? It's like, my book choices are all over the place. And that that could be a sign of like, hey, Neil can't focus, right? But it could also be a sign of like, I'm looking at all these different areas and I might make connections between different things. And actually, Taleb even talks about this in, uh, I don't think in this section of the book, but in a different section where he's talking about how, you know, people say that in uh, uh, the Mesoamericans, so like the Mayans and the Aztecs didn't have wheels, right? But turns out they actually had wheels. 
uh, it was just on children's toys and they never made the leap to connect that to transportation. So if maybe more people were looking at the intersections of different things, hey, what's in the toy industry for the Aztecs that could be applied to transportation? There's actually value to have human beings who are looking at the intersections of different areas and can't focus on one thing. And I think it's truly naive interventionism to say that people have to focus on one thing. And you see that in schools too, um, with the focus on getting people into one major and kind of focused on one one area for the rest of their life. Exactly. Uh, disincentivizing some of the, like you, you can't really major in nothing. Right. Which would be awesome. Which would could. be great. Yeah. That was essentially part of why I did the philosophy degree. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. So it was one of, it was a good benefit. It wasn't part of the motivation going in. I figured it out after, but because it was one of the laxest degrees at the school, it had the fewest requirements. Mm. I could basically take whatever I wanted. Interesting. Yeah. That is exactly how everyone should do university. And you had time to work on side stuff too. Oh yeah. It's so much time. Uh, I mean, contrast that to the business school or the computer science school where every single class is mapped out for you. Yeah. You get no intellectual curiosity to go out and learn things. Oh, yeah. Right. And so if the goal of the university is to create well-educated, well-rounded, interesting, capable people, they're kind of failing in that regard by shunting everyone into this one path because you you get the excellent sheet problem, right? Where you've got these really, really high-performing people who are all sort of exactly the same. Which is a fragile position to be in. It is a fragile position yeah. to be in. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many examples of this naive interventionism. I, I love the ADHD example because I think that one's so poignant. And antidepressants is a, is a really good one as well. Yeah, I mean, antidepressants is a big one too, right? I think that I I don't know who I was talking to about this recently. Oh, I was talking to Anoush. And he said that he had dinner with a doctor friend the other night who was arguing that anyone who regularly feels listless and unhappy should be on some form of antidepressant, right? And that's a really scary thing for a doctor to be saying. Because I think all of us have been in that situation for, you know, an extended period of time, whether if you went through a breakup, if you lost a job, if yeah. you, you know, things happen in life. And if you haven't gone through that, or and if you if you never allow yourself to feel that, then you never learn how to deal with it or handle it. Right. And, and certainly, you know, there are people who are legitimately suicidal for whatever reasons and should be on antidepressants. Yeah. But this idea that everyone going through difficult periods should be on them is really problematic. And especially when you get into a lot of the terminology around depression and antidepressants, where this idea of depression is a chemical imbalance in the brain, there's not any good evidence for that. There's some studies that suggest that there's some studies that go against it. It's not conclusive at all, but the popularity of that language and this idea that, oh, it's something you have and that you're born with creates this issue where then people think, oh, I've been unhappy for the last couple of months. I must have depression. Therefore, I need this drug to fix a chemical imbalance, right? And, and like, that's pretty problematic. I think it's also the language, uh, like a ling- linguistics thing as well, because you have, I mean, I find it kind of strange that we have this idea that we always have to be happy. I don't think that's how humans are. <laughs> like, I write some of my best stuff when I'm really upset. Yeah, I mean, right? you do some of the best things when you're really, like, also, I don't feel like this is, I think just a way that humans are, but like if like when I was living in California and every single day was sunny, I somewhat stopped valuing sunny days. Like I would get more annoyed about the cloudy days or rainy days, right? And be like, I just came from Pittsburgh, like right. <laughs> where it was cloudy like three hundred days or something per year. And now I'm annoyed that there's one cloudy day this week in yeah. San Francisco. Like, what? <laughs> are you kidding me, Neil? Um, but I think we we get very sort of um used to what happens all the time and we make this assumption that we always have to be happy and then or it seems like everyone else around you is always happy which is not necessarily true people are putting on facades a lot of times yeah social media yeah social media i think ties exactly into this but then you know internally you're not feeling that way 
and you think you might have a chemical imbalance or something. But really, everybody's feeling that. And, you know, I think once you go through a period of your life, I'm using air quotes, but, you know, depressed, right? Where for most of us who go through that, I don't think we're actually depressed. We're just going through, you know, maybe a hard time or something. Um, You learn techniques to fight that. Well, I think, I mean, there's something else in there too, where, and this is part of why I like talking about depression on the podcast, is that I think that more people realizing how many people go through depressed periods of their life helps more people feel like, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not screwed up in going through this. And I mean, I do think a big part of it, too, is there's a difference between being sad about something and being sad generally, right? Feeling kind of listless and unhappy. And I think that where a lot of the latter comes from, and I know part of it for me, you know, because I I was like really bad for a couple of years. And a big part of it for me was this idea that I should be happy, right? Mm -hmm. And I think this is why depression and suicide are so much more common among affluent people. You don't see people in poor communities or war-torn communities committing suicide. You really only see it in more affluent groups. And I think part of that reason is that when you have everything, so to speak, right? You're well-fed and you've got a great degree or a great job and you've got friends and you've got this cool life and it's not making you happy. There's this weird guilt, right? And you may have actually not deliberately chosen all those things, right? You may just be in school because somebody else told you that this was what you should do and in the job because somebody else told you this is what you should do and in city because somebody else told you this is what you should do and none of it's making you happy. And then you feel guilty, right? Like, oh, I should be happy. This should be meaningful and it's not. And then to me, a big realization was, okay, I have to kind of just say, screw all of that and go do my own thing and figure out what does make me happy. But I think a lot of people go the other way where they say, no, if all of this stuff that other people say should make me happy isn't making me happy, I must be screwed up. Therefore, I need medication, all these other things, because they are probably right about what will make me happy. And they don't actually like dig in and figure it out for themselves. Do you think some of it is... uh Maybe some people are more trusting of the wisdom of crowds than yeah. than others. I think. I, I mean, I think part of it is like a selection bias too, because I mean, you and I are semi mostly contrarian people. <laughs> we're we're painting so, the ass. Basically. Yeah. So when we see like a crowd saying one thing, I think almost naturally we almost tend to go in the opposite direction, or we definitely question what the crowd is saying. But I know I wasn't always like that for sure. Um, it took going through one of those down time, down periods uh, in my life to kind of make me that way a little bit. But yeah, I think uh, so. The antidepressant one is a huge example, I think. And then, um, you know, I think procrastination. You've talked about it. Oh yeah, that's a great. One. Talked about it offline or off yeah. the podcast. But yeah, I used to always feel so guilty about procrastinating, and I, I have a big problem with procrastination. But it's only recently, or through actually reading to have a little bit more, that I've been realizing that like procrastination is actually like a valuable signal that my brain is kind of telling me. Right. It's useful. It's like either this isn't that urgent or this isn't that important to you, right? Like a rule that I've been sort of creating for myself. Or you're not ready to write about this. I mean, I know I've, I've had times where I try to write about something and I'm like, oh, I really need to write that blog post. And then like the next day, it's like, oh, I really need to write that blog post. And the day after, it's like, I really should write that blog post today. And you just keep pushing it off. And then you sit down to actually write it and you're like, shit, I didn't do all enough research yet. Um, or I'm just not ready to write this or I don't have enough experience to write this post yeah and there are like your procrastination is kind of telling you something a lot of times well and sometimes you can harness it really practically I, I don't know about you but i will sometimes create structure for myself so that i procrastinate on it and end up doing other things so i actually have a weekly schedule of the articles i'm going to publish and what days i'm going to publish them i have never followed that schedule <laughs> ever i love it but <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> it gives me a framework within which i can 
I guess, like goof off and do other things. And then those other things turn into other articles that get published. Like I found in school, I did my best work when I was procrastinating schoolwork or homework, right? And it was a really useful signal of, okay, if I don't actually want to do this, like I either shouldn't do it or I should rush through it at the last minute or go do something else. Or another thing, like with the podcast, for example, I've been looking at the parts of it that I procrastinate most, which were really the editing and the show notes. And I outsourced them, right? I found good people who could handle that. And I was like, all right, if I'm procrastinating it, but it needs to get done, I shouldn't be doing it, right? It's just not your wheelhouse. Whereas doing the interviews and scheduling them is a lot of fun. I love doing that, right? I don't procrastinate it. Like that's what I do to procrastinate the stuff that I think I should be doing. So it's, I mean, it's a really useful tool, but if you get sucked in by the whole lifehacker.com <laughs> belief that like, no, the solution to life is in the next to-do app, right? Then you'll feel guilty every yeah. time you're goofing off and doing other stuff yeah. when it's actually a great signal. Yeah, that you you know either aren't ready or you should be working on other stuff. This actually reminds me of a lot of corporate strategy stuff where... Uh, you know, companies will put together a corporate strategy for the year, three-year plan or five-year plan, almost Soviet-era type stuff. And actually, Taleb alludes to that with his, what is it, the Harvard-Soviet? Like, yeah, the Harvard-Soviet <laughs> complex or something. We should actually <laughs> explain that maybe a little bit. but um, Well, I think it's just this idea you're talking about, yeah. the, the idea that you can plan, that you can plan an economy for five years or you can plan a career for five years. Right. Because it completely ignores that, like, the only way that would work is if there were no black swan events. Yeah. Or if there was nothing, or if you could predict with certainty, like, what's going to happen. We don't know what the weather is going to be next week. No, so, how sure. are we going to predict, like, economic forecasts right. for two weeks from now, let yeah. alone two years? Right. Right? It's exactly. absurd. But it reminds me of corporate strategy because it's, you know, you have uh, a strategy that's agreed upon at the highest level and stuff. And kind of like the procrastination thing, 99% of the stuff in the strategy never happens. And it's all the other stuff that people are working <laughs> on while they're not doing the corporate strategy that actually ends up driving the business forward. So it's kind of funny how like it's basically procrastination that's driving these businesses forward. Well, and we actually don't have this on our discussion sheet, but we are going to procrastinate that and talk about this now that it's come up, because I think that that uh, dichotomy between top down and bottom up is really interesting too, yeah. where all of the corporate strategy is based on like a top down planning where you plan at the high level and then you send it down to the bottom. And you say, this is what you guys are going to do. It never works. I have not seen it work. I haven't seen it work at a five man company, or I think you haven't seen it work at like 500 person company. Yeah. Or even, you know, 5,000, 25,000 person yeah. company. I've never seen it work. <laughs> I mean, meanwhile, bottom up works very well where they're figuring it out on the ground and, and sending it up. I mean, this is like military strategy, right? Where you really just have commander's intent and really high level orders get sent down to the more localized forces and they know on a high level what they're supposed to be aiming towards but if you try to control everything from you know the pentagon like boots on the ground are right. not going to be able to do exactly what you told them to because you don't have nearly as much information as they do partially tied to this idea that you can quantify everything that is happening on the ground right i think there are there's a lot that can be quantified and maybe there's more that can be quantified in the future. But where we sit today, like using your Pentagon example, right? I mean, yeah, you can have a video going, a video stream going that's delivered to you by drone. You can have like cameras on each of the soldiers' helmets. You can have all this stuff, but I still think there's an element missing yeah. that the people on the ground actually have that exactly. the Pentagon would not have. There's that extra layer, that sort of gestalt from the full yeah. experience that right, people higher up will never get. Could be the way the air smells, like human like, instinct, things, right? Yeah. There's all these things that, you know, are not necessarily quantifiable that are there. So, or just even sounds, um, yeah, whatever. Like there's no birds going or something, you know, like, but the Pentagon, like you would just not know that from that distance. Yeah. So I'm going to suggest that we pause here. We get another one of your delicious beers. I think that sounds like a good plan. And then when we come back, we're going to pick up on the barbell strategy. Sweet.
All right. And we are back. Neil, what are we drinking this time? Now we're drinking a chamomile saison. Ooh, cheers. Um, All right. I don't know how strongly the chamomile came through, but that's because maybe I didn't use enough. Ooh, that's good. But you definitely get the saison in there. Nice. It's tasty. All right. <laughs> so when we left off, we were talking about naive intervention, a lot of the ways that that plays out in life. And one of the problems with that a lot of the ways we talked about is that with this naive intervention, people believe that the middle is better, that we want to arrive at this common middle, that we want to not have the extremes at either end. But one of the other points to let makes is that sometimes it is better to have two extremes with little in the middle. And he calls this the barbell strategy. So what do we mean by barbell? The barbell, a bar with weights on both ends that weightlifters use, is meant to illustrate the idea of a combination of extremes kept separate with avoidance of the middle. In our context, it is not necessarily symmetric. It is just composed of two extremes with nothing in the center. One can also call it, more technically, a bimodal strategy, as it has two distinct modes rather than a single central one. I initially used the image of the barbell to describe a dual attitude of playing it safe in some areas, robust to negative black swans, and taking a lot of small risks in other areas, open to positive black swans, hence achieving anti-fragility. That is extreme risk aversion on one side and extreme risk loving on the other, rather than just the medium or the beastly moderate risk attitude that is in fact a sucker game, because medium risks can be subjected to huge measurement errors. But the barbell also results because of its construction in the reduction of downside risk, the elimination of the risk of ruin. I think that's very, very wise. You know, I think the strategy, even in my own life, right? So I'm leaving my consulting work. I'm diving full on into into my startup, right? So that's pretty risky, I would say. But on the other side of that, like for most of my assets, I used to do a lot of like stock market investing and things like that. Um, I was looking at buying a house as like a rental property. So there are all these sort of like investments that I would consider medium risk. Uh, you know, I think housing is is, you know, we had 08, and I think that was. Uh, to me at least, showed that housing is not necessarily the safe investment that people tend to view it as. So I think both housing and stock market, I'd view as medium. I didn't end up buying the house, even though I looked at a few. And then from the stock market perspective, I've, I've basically been pulling out much of that and moving it just into cash because I think I have the extreme risk of basically reducing my income to zero and working on my startup. And then on the other side, I have cash, which unless the US government just decides to massively inflate the dollar, I should be okay <laughs> with at least that. But there's still a tiny bit of risk there. I mean, that'd be the ultimate black swan, I guess, if uh, our dollar turns into like Zimbabwe or something. But then all the other risks wouldn't matter. <laughs> exactly. Right? Then nothing else matters because the whole economy would, <laughs> would be destroyed. So, I mean, this area in particular is one that I think, and especially when we get into finance, yeah. is one that will be really... I don't want to say challenging, but like sacrilegious to some people. I think an easy way to understand it first is, again, going back to exercise, where we know that moderate long distance running doesn't do nearly as much for you as sprinting and resting. High interval, high intensity interval training is much better for you than the sort of slower long distance running. Likewise, lifting a 100 pound weight once is better for you than lifting a one pound weight 100 times. Right, it's nonlinear. But what's interesting is, like you were just talking about, he takes it and applies it to investments, which took me a long time to come around on because the extremely common advice is diversify. Exactly, diversify. Put your money in index funds, and it, you know when you look at it, if we get a nice, safe seven percent return each year, averaged out, then in about 10, 11 years, you'll double your money. But 
there is always that chance of, you know, the sudden downturn, another 08. I don't think it's crazy to say that the next major recession would be as bad, if not worse, as we've been having fewer of the little ones in between. And if that strikes at the wrong time for you, you're in an extremely fragile position. Now, the counter to that is sort of what Taleb is saying, which was, which is, you know, say you have $100,000, keep 90000 of it in pure cash or equivalent or equivalents yeah, yeah t bills yeah. or whatever and then take the other ten thousand and be highly speculative yep. with it which could be you know investing in a startup it could be investing in your own startup or whatever but yeah it's something that is has the potential for massive massive returns not like we're not talking seven percent like, no no but yeah. i mean e- even if we take that number yeah. right so here's here's the question right if you have ten thousand dollars do you think you could turn that into a hundred thousand dollars in ten years yeah. right that's very doable. I mean, I we both know people who have done that in like much less time. Yeah. It's not extremely complicated. It takes a while to get used to some yeah, of the more entrepreneurial right stuff, learn the right skills. But that question of could you turn 10,000 into 100,000 in 10 years? Yes, obviously, yes. like almost anyone can do that. Yeah. And while you're doing it, you have that $90,000 completely safe. Even if the stock market goes completely down, it's still $90,000. Actually, your purchasing power might actually increase exactly. in those cases because <laughs> people may discount things a lot more. Yeah. And you can <laughs> buy things up when everyone's getting scared. Right. And so, I mean, it took me a long time to come around to that too, but I think it gets easier once you have that first experience of leveraging your own money in your own investments, as opposed to trusting it with other people. I think yeah. there's definitely a big risk that comes from investing in something where you can have no influence. I think it's also though like the loss aversion side. So we'll fi- we'll dig up the image and we'll put it in the show notes, but there's this image I saw uh, shared on Twitter last week which was the amount you'd have to make back if you lost certain percentages. Yeah, so like if you lost let's say you had $1000 invest in the stock market and you lost, you know, 90%, so you're down to $100. Now you need to get a 10x return to get back to your $1000. So loss of like that is hard to get a 10x return in the stock market. Yeah. So it's really really hard to get a 10x return <laughs> in the stock market. Um so like that loss aversion of being, you know, you if you could lose $900, that's almost like getting wiped out, right? I mean, you're right. you're down to your last 10% there, but th- how hard it is to come back from that. It's not like, oh, I lost 90% now I just need to gain 90% to come back. It's not like it's a non-linear thing. It's like you go down 90%, now you need to go up a thousand percent to come back to break even. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's not a linear, uh linear scale there. And and then the interesting question is where else can you apply some of this barbell strategy? Yeah. I mean, one area that comes up a lot when I talk to people who are trying to do marketing for their sites or their business or whatever is this tendency to try to do everything at once where they're saying, I want to do ads and Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest and SEO and content and influencer. And you, you end up getting spread out way too thin and none of it ends up working. Whereas if you do like completely in on one thing and none of the other things, right, then you can just focus on that. But then once you have something that's working, you can bring in this bimodal strategy where you put 80% of your effort into what you know works and then the other 20% into highly speculative, right. crazy experiments that might return amazing results. Right. And I think it you could apply that to large companies as well as they're thinking about innovation, right? It's your 80% of your quote unquote R&D efforts, like I'll use Estee Lauder as the example, can go towards improving your existing lines of products, you know, making a face cream that would reduce wrinkles 5% better than it currently is, or, you know, a lipstick that'll last 10% longer on your lips, right, um, than it currently does. And then 20% of that can go into things that are highly speculative that most likely will crash and burn, but could click and actually create a new business model or a whole new line of business for your company. And so, yeah, I think like 
the barbell approach for so many things in life applies. It helps you filter out things too, because if you're looking at an opportunity that might only give you a 2x or a 50% return, it's probably not a good investment of time or energy. I think another interesting example is like friends and social networks. That's a really good one. Where there's this tendency, especially with Facebook and everything, to be right in the middle with a huge swath of people. Whereas, I mean, one, it's not really how we evolved. We're much more tribal than that. And so it's almost better to have... Nobody has 2,000 friends. Yeah, nobody has 2,000 (laughs) friends. (laughs) Better to have like a smaller group of really tight-knit people and then, you know, a larger knit or a larger swath of like loose ties. Right, as opposed to trying to stay in touch with everyone all the time, right? Because that comes with a cost. If you try to stay in touch with everyone all the time, you're not highly investing in those few really meaningful relationships. And I think we were talking about that a little bit on the last podcast when we were talking about like building your network and stuff. So folks who go to like networking events and just collect business cards and LinkedIn connections, that's not quite the best way to network. And you know, I think I said exactly the same thing on the last one, but I'd much rather have a network where the people in my network are people I can text and say, Hey, can I crash on your couch tonight? And they would say yes. So it's, you know, it might be fewer. It's definitely going to be fewer people because you're not gonna be able to do that with 2000 different people. But the people you are able to do that with, you know, you are kind of you're much closer and those connections are so much more valuable, right? Where it's like, part of what we're challenging here is a lot of common behaviors. It's this idea that, okay, no, you want to be in the middle, right? Like you want these medium risk investments. You want this huge group of medium closeness friends. You want this like medium risk work. And another thing that he really challenges is this idea of plans and stories. And if we're going back to what we were talking about before with the top down versus bottom up, once you're in a big company, you think top down will work for planning things, even though all of the ways that you know the company built up in the beginning were from bottom up. This is one thing that he points out too and talks about a bit is this idea of the teleological fallacy. It's pretty close to the narrative fallacy where you know we have this idea that we can plan things and have a clear path forward when in most cases we can't and we never have before. So I'll hop into the book again. So let us call here the teleological fallacy, the illusion that you know exactly where you are going and that you knew exactly where you were going in the past and that others have succeeded in the past by knowing where they were going. The rational flaneur is someone who, unlike a tourist, makes a decision at every step to revise his schedule so that he can imbibe things based on new information, what Nero was trying to practice in his travels, often guided by his sense of smell. The flaneur is not a prisoner of a plan. Tourism, actual or figurative, is imbued with a teleological illusion. It assumes completeness of vision and gets one locked into a hard-to-revise program, while the flaneur continuously, and what is crucially, rationally, modifies his target as he acquires information. So, simple idea, right? That many of us think that we need to have a plan, that we have had a plan in the past, that other people have plans, <laughs> and that if we don't have a plan, there's a problem. And if anyone who's actually listened to your podcast before, they can hear <laughs> from almost all of your guests exactly. that they're, the plan, what the only thing you can be sure of is that your plan is not going to happen. <laughs> right. No, no plan survives contact yeah, with the enemy. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think uh, Taylor Pearson brought this up. I'm not sure if it was in my episode or in another interview, but he mentioned that goals are great for choosing a direction, but they aren't great for creating a plan. And like even creating a plan is not necessarily always a good idea. It's, it's much better to like build a system that can move you towards that goal, but trying to create a strict plan of how you will get there will almost always fail. Yeah, because I think it's it goes back to your uh, terrain versus map argument right, right. where, you know, I think in most endeavors, the terrain is not fixed. 
Yeah. Right. Things are changing. You know, like I always go back to business examples, but like what people want is always changing. Technology is always changing. How you deliver that stuff to customers is always changing. So to think that you know what the terrain is going to look like in six months, a year, two years, whatever, um, it, you usually don't. Right? Yeah. So. Well, and it can also be problematic where if you create this rigid plan and then lock yourself into it, you can't respond to new opportunities. Yeah. Or you may try to force fit what's happening to your old map, I guess, of what the terrain would have looked like. You're wedded to your old positions, right? And so then you get into these sunk cost issues and you might even ignore new or contradictory information that challenges your pre-existing beliefs and your plans, right? I mean, I think we see this in academia a lot Mm. where something comes out that challenges uh, an academic standard, people will resist it really intensely, right? It's uh, the Semmelweis reflex, right? Where Semmelweis discovered the thing about hand washing and yep. birth giving, and then he tried to tell doctors about it, and they were so resistant to it that they ended up putting him in an insane asylum <laughs> where he died, right? But we see some stuff like that yeah, all the time yeah. where people really don't like having their pre existing beliefs challenged. And I think part of that's related to this, where if you create a strict plan for yourself and then something challenges it, you don't deviate from it. Going back to college, right? We see this with people who lock themselves into a career as soon as they get there, where they say, they come in as a freshman. They say, I want to go into investment banking. They study for it a couple of years. They get that first internship. They don't like the internship. But instead of saying, oh, I didn't like the internship, therefore I should do something else. They say something more like, oh, I didn't like the internship, but I've invested all this time. So you know, I should go ahead with it. Or, well, it's only for two years. Or, right. or like, well, I actually like it on the job. It's just the internship that sucked, right? right. You create these other narratives right. to explain away the interruptions to your plan. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's one part of the intro that you gave, which I think especially I want to focus on, which is that that thing about how you knew exactly where you were going in the past, right? And I think we a lot of times backtrack reasons or we come up with reasons later for why we did certain things when it, there was really no reason. And I think, I mean, on the last one, I gave the example of how I ended up at Mom Trusted over No Weight. And really, it was completely random. Chaz just answered the email first. Yeah. <laughs> That's all the only reason it was. I mean, there's no other there's no other explanation. But it would be very easy for me to just go back and say like, well, no, I mean, you know, Mom Trust was just so much more impressive as a company. Yeah, I mean, it'd be very easy for me to create a narrative around that. And I'm sure I have created narratives around other decisions in the past where I've post-rationalized reasons for it. Uh, but it's a trap that we all fall into. And it's even easier when it's not your own story. Because when you yeah. look at other people, it's so easy to create a narrative about how they got there and concoct in your mind that, oh, they were following this clear plan and you know I can follow a similar plan and it'll work out. But in most cases, you know they were just responding to random stimuli too and they were making it up as they went. They may have had a plan and that changed suddenly. Yeah. And I think what we're saying is like not having goals. So I think like, for example, let's say you have a goal of, you know, you maybe you have a nine to five right now you want to build, you want to be some in some scenario where you're independent of that nine to five and maybe a freelancer or have some passive income that's kind of creating something. We're not saying don't have that goal, but we're saying don't expect that your plan of building a course uh, that will sell, you know, enough to make you enough, you know, enough money passively that you don't have to work. That plan may not be correct, but your goal might still be correct. There's many different paths to getting there. And so I think that's what, what Taleb is trying to say here is like this narrative fallacy is not, it's not to not have a goal. It's to not get too wedded, wedded to a plan or looking at other people's paths yeah, to getting there. Yeah.
And it actually encourages the kind of entrepreneurial tinkering that we've talked about a lot so far. I think for anybody interested in marketing, uh, Justin Mayer is an earlier guest and Gabriel Weinberg wrote this book, Traction, which is fantastic for helping startups get customers. And in the book, the process they outline is don't pick a certain type of traction opportunity and just go for that. Take all of them, seriously analyze each one, and then do a little $500 experiment with each one and see you know what happens. right? Because if you just create a plan of, oh, I'm going to get 10,000 customers via content marketing, and then you try to go out and just do that, you might get really frustrated. Yeah. Whereas if you had avoided the plan in the beginning and focused more on tinkering, experimenting, and opening yourself up to opportunities you would have gotten a lot more out of it and you probably could have progressed a lot faster. Yeah, and I think part of it um, to moving it slightly uh, further away from the like the traction example or the goals example is like when going back to what you were saying about like other people's narratives. I think Taleb makes this point in the book really, really nicely, but he uses birds as the example of uh, teaching birds how to fly, right? And he says, you know, um, professors might be able to explain like the mathematics of flight or you know, how birds are doing what they do, but the birds don't really care about any of that theory, right? They're just kind of doing what they do. And he also takes that point to explain entrepreneurs or other types of um, other types of individuals who they're not performing based on their ability to talk about what they're doing. They're just doing what they're doing. And I use, you know, I don't know if I brought this up in the last one, but I use the example of like Michael Jordan teaching people how to play basketball before, you know, I think I've used that in just conversations with folks. And Michael Jordan didn't become Michael Jordan because of how well he could teach basketball or how well he could explain how he's playing basketball, the physics of how he's putting the ball in the hoop. He just does what he does. And other people explain it, right? And I think the other people explaining it are going to prescribe reasons to what he's doing that may have nothing to do with why he's doing it because they're not in his head. Exactly. That's always the danger too, is, you know, a, a kid doesn't need to understand aerodynamics to ride a bicycle. You can do a great many things without fully understanding them. And sometimes that's actually a better way to learn, right? Uh, one thing that I figured out with language learning, for example, was that it was way easier to just learn how to speak parts of the language and be able to basically converse before ever learning spelling or grammar. It just wasn't necessary. And then you can go back and you can try to fit the rules onto it afterwards and it can enhance your understanding. But when you start with rules and then try to build like, you know, the full experience off of that, I think it's actually harder. It's kind of like top down versus bottom up, right? It's literally the exact same thing. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, when you're, when you're getting into some of the entrepreneurship startup stuff, it's way better to just go screw around and try a bunch of things and then read the books afterwards. Because if you try to read the books first, you, I'm sure you've had this experience too, where you'll be talking to someone and they'll be talking about something that you understand fairly well. And it will be very obvious from how they're talking that they don't actually know how to do it. They've just read books yes, about it or blog posts. Yeah. And they're talking about it in this way that it's very hard to describe what gives it away. But yeah. you can just sort of tell that there's something different about their description of it where it's missing like a complete understanding. And you also see the exact opposite of that, too. There's people out there who you find are using the completely incorrect vocabulary for certain things. Yeah. But they are definitely know what they're talking about. Exactly. And it's kind of like reminds me of the Fat Tony and Nero. <laughs> yeah. And- you don't need to understand the underlying science, right? Yeah. I mean, I think this is a great example where I like I've used the acronym KPIs for years yeah. and I didn't figure out what the acronym actually stood for mm. until a couple months ago. It was, it was never important. You, you know what you're trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> when he talks about the, the green lumber fallacy. Okay, yeah, right. right? <laughs> Maybe you can explain that a little bit. Where one of the <laughs> traders that he worked with on Wall Street made a fortune in buying and selling green lumber. And this guy legitimately thought that it was logs that had been painted green, not that it was freshly cut logs. 
But his not understanding what green lumber was didn't affect his ability to trade it effectively. Yeah, because he still knew what moved the prices and how to manipulate that and play with it. And so sometimes we focus on the wrong things where we think that some underlying knowledge is necessary in order to get started, whereas you can most likely just develop that intuitive feel for it without a lot of that underlying science. I and mean, this is a lot of the criticism I have for the way engineering was taught in, in undergrad. It is not taught this way everywhere, but definitely at, at CMU at the time I was there. It was taught this way where you did almost all your theory classes first, and then you concluded with labs. And I found that to be, at least for me, completely backwards. I would find that in the labs classes, I would finally get motivated to learn the concepts. But by then, you're done with all the theory classes. So you'd be doing it on your own, and you know you would have missed out on that opportunity. Yeah. Whereas if you kind of did it the opposite way, where you're kind of putting yourself in a situation where you you know are trying to actually tinker or create something... And then you're like, wow, I wish, like, I wonder how you do this. And then you go learn, learn the theory. There's kind of an anchor point as well. And you know what it's relevant to. Uh, and I think that applies to everything. If you're trying to learn a marketing skill, it's the same kind of thing, you know? Like, you want some experiences to yeah. peg the knowledge to. Right. If it just exists in a vacuum, it's much harder. So, I mean, that's sort of the takeaway from it is that there really is no forward thinking planning in the rigid sense a lot of people think of it. There's really just tinkering and playing around and seeing what happens and going off of that and experimenting. And a big part of how you do that and get the ability to do that is through optionality and having a lot of options, right? Which is sort of this next section, which I'll read from a little bit. Optionality will take us many places. But at the core, an option is what makes you anti-fragile and allows you to benefit from the positive side of uncertainty without a corresponding serious harm from the negative side. So this is a, I mean, this is a perfect way to show what we were talking about with the tinkering and even with the investing, where if you were thinking in terms of, you know, who's going to be at greater risk if there's a sudden market downturn, the person with 90% in cash and 10% and highly speculative can only be hurt so much. Whereas the person with the medium risk, they have much fewer options with you know what to do. They're kind of locked in. They're going to lose out. Somebody who doesn't have a strict plan, when something random and good happens to them, they're able to take full advantage of it. Somebody who has a strict plan, doesn't have a lot of time. They don't have the options. They can't benefit from these random good things happening. Yep. Or they're just not even looking for them. Yeah, or they're not looking for them. They miss them when they come by. Yeah. They're not. I mean, Taleb talks about how you should go to a lot of parties, right? <laughs> you should go to all the cocktail parties you can because you never know when you'll just meet. And you can leave whenever you want. Right? <laughs> but you never know when you'll just meet that perfect yeah. person where you both can help each other in some amazing yeah. way, right? Absolutely. So your downside risk is basically nothing. Exactly. Yeah, you've got no downside, but all massive upside. Yeah, no, I think the optionality thing, it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think going back to... Something that Taleb talks about a lot uh, related to optionality is when things are, I guess, very, very well defined, like and I'm struggling with the right way to say this, but I guess things where you you kind of think you know what the outcome is or you think it's, you know, or you think you know what the risk is. It puts you in a very bad spot because like so medium risk investments are a great example of this. So if you, it's not a linear type of system, right, where medium risk thing, let's say you think it's, oh, it's only... 20% chance I'll lose, you know, something here, 80% chance it'll go up 7%. But then you have the other person who has 90% of their money in cash, 10% of their money in highly speculative. The person who has that 90-10 split, their optionality is so much higher because let's say things do go down. They still have 90% of their money in cash and they can take advantage of that downturn. The person who has 100% of their money in medium risk things, 
on paper may think they're sitting at the exact same spot as that 90-10 person. And maybe on paper, they are sitting at the exact same spot as that person. But when things blow up, their entire portfolio has just gone completely down and they're screwed, right? They don't have that 90% cash just sitting on the sideline ready to take advantage of a low buying opportunity. Um, and I think Charlie Munger actually talks about that a lot and Warren Buffett as well. And you know their partners uh, at Berkshire Hathaway um, of taking advantage or having cash available on the sidelines to take advantage of these opportunities. And that's basically the definition of optionality, right? Of being able to go do that. Well, I mean, the biggest resource, too, is just time. That's that's number one, yeah. Most people lose optionality because they don't have the time available to take advantage of these cool opportunities. And I think that's honestly one of the other really great arguments for the more freelance, entrepreneurial, consulting, even lifestyle, where independent consulting, not uh, corporate, but where if you have the option to tomorrow just drop all of your other projects and take advantage of a massive amazing opportunity that comes across your plate, you're way more positively exposed to sudden good events, right? And those are the kinds of things that you can't predict, right? Where if we're going back to the planning fallacy and like the teleological fallacy, looking five years ahead for somebody in a very safe lawyer job or whatever, it's like, okay, cool, you've got this nice progression, it's going to go here, but it's clear and it's linear. Whereas the five year ahead for somebody doing something more entrepreneurial, it's way murkier. You can't really see any of it ahead. Nat, where do you want to be in five years? (laughs) I'm still figuring out three months. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You simply can't do it because what will most likely happen is that you'll have periods of sort of plateaus or slow growth and then something awesome will happen and you'll spike up, right? And then you'll kind of plateau again. You'll spike and plateau and you, you can't predict what those spikes will be. You just have to keep opening yourself up to them. That's part of why I really like the blog and the podcast is that every week a given article will probably do the same as the ones before it, slightly better. But then every now and then you have a weird, you know, positive black swan where something goes viral, right? The Soylent community gets all in a fuss yeah. about your article <laughs> and it sends, you know, 10,000 people over the course of a week, right? right. It, right. Like those crazy things happen, but you only get exposed to those positive uh, occurrences by like having the freedom and the options in the first place. Right. And I think in a lot of typical corporate jobs, you are exposed to negative black swans where things could happen. I mean, like things happen to companies. Let's say you work for a company that's 25,000 people and has been around for 100 years. I mean, things happen, whether it's someone's fault, you know, something fraud related or some type of crime that the company commits, or uh, it could just be, you know, the company just goes out of business. Kodak, you know, has fallen off. You know, tons of companies have yeah. gone out of business over the years. Blockbuster, I mean, everybody. Most like, of the people who worked for Enron were probably nice yeah. people who had a safe, reliable job. Yeah. And they probably didn't do anything wrong. No, right. Not. So you're exposed to a negative black swan there where it's not something you could have predicted that your company was committing fraud and went out of business. But and I would much rather be exposed to my own oh, mistakes yeah. than somebody else's. Oh, yeah. I think that's another big part of this where it's like, who will you let screw up your life, mm, right? Or screw up your work. Yeah. And the fewer options you have, the more you are kind of relying on other people to not screw up or the more you're relying on the job to not disappear, get evaporated. You know, for all you know, your manager could get laid off and then yep. your whole division gets laid off. And, you know, you didn't do anything wrong. You were fine. Yep. Right. But at least when you're on your own and kind of eating what you kill, you're only vulnerable to your own mistakes and right. your own failures. Which is, you know, a little scarier. You're playing goalie, but you at least have more control. <laughs> yeah, and I think having having the options too, because you were aware and in a situation where you know that could happen anytime. I think going in with the mindset that like shit happens. It's not the turkey. Happens, like, not the turkey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Shit's gonna happen. Like it will happen in our life. You know, things go wrong. But I think having that, like knowing that that's gonna happen, and because you're exposed to it directly, 
you are much more aware that it could happen. Whereas if you kind of like under several layers of uh, insulation, I guess, right, if you work at a big company or um, something like that, you're not necessarily directly exposed to the the customer churn or anything like that. And you might just miss it. Yeah. It's easy to think that none of those things could be problems that affect you. And then it's an even bigger surprise when something bad happens. Unlike the taxi driver who goes a day without making any sales, you expect that's going to happen sometime, right. right? But the person who suddenly gets laid off in a bad job market, it's a way bigger surprise. Just, yeah, it's a way more, way bigger surprise and you're way less likely to have actually created options as insurance, yeah. right? So, I mean, uh, anyone who's freelanced for any period of time knows that there are per- periods of feast and famine. Right. And you know that during those periods of feast, you absolutely still should be cultivating future relationships so you can have more clients in the future because you know things are going like, to, it's not always going to be feast. And I feel like if you, you are directly exposed to that because you're, it's your business, right? Whereas, yeah, I mean, if you're in a larger company where, you know, yeah, there might be feast and famine periods for that business, but your salary doesn't experience that. Exactly. Right. So you don't necessarily, you don't feel the pain. You don't have skin in the game. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I, which we'll get to later. We'll get to. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the optionality does filter into the next section. Not so directly, but this idea of creating more options by removing the things that limit them is really big. And, you know, Taleb has a whole part of the book called Via Negativa, right? So by removal, where he talks about how so many problems and issues and sources of fragility can be fixed by removal, even though we have this naive interventionism, this desire to do something, this desire to add something in order to fix problems. So let's talk about Via Negativa, and I'll, I'll read from the book. And this is a really good example of Via Negativa, right? The shoe industry, after spending decades engineering the perfect walking and running shoe with all manner of support mechanisms and material for cushioning, is now selling us shoes that replicate being barefoot. They want to be so unobtrusive that their only claimed function is to protect our feet from the elements, not to dictate how we walk as the more modernistic mission was. In a way, they are selling us the calloused feet of a hunter-gatherer that we can put on, use, and then remove upon returning to civilization. It is quite exhilarating to wear these shoes when walking in nature, as one wakes up to a new dimension while feeling the three dimensions of the terrain. It's a perfect example, right? Shoes. We realized that all of these raised heels, these ideal running shoes were actually creating issues. We were heel striking as we were running. Really bad for your legs. That's where most running injuries come from. Mm. And now we're recognizing, you know, if you go look at children running around in tribal societies, they don't land on their heels. They land on the balls of their feet. It's a completely different running uh, mechanism. And if you try running barefoot, you'll feel it yourself. It'll kind of force you to to run that way. Exactly. Yeah. You cannot heel strike unless you're wearing, uh, you know, Nike whatever running shoe and when you try to do it naturally it feels totally wrong Mm. and so now okay the shoe industry is realizing wait we created all these problems by trying to change how people ran we need to go back to nature and i mean we're seeing this all over we're seeing this in so many industries where we thought the solution was intervention and it turns out the solution is just removing this belief that we can out-engineer, you know, millions of years of evolution. And I think that's actually a really uh, interesting tangent maybe to run into for a second. But, you know, I think when Taleb talks about stressors, and I know he says this probably somewhere in the intro, but time is kind of the ultimate the ultimate stressor, right? Uh, I, I believe that's right in the beginning of Anti-Fragile. And things that have been shaped by evolution have experienced that ultimate stressor, right? This time, all the stuff that's happened over time. And yeah, I think the shoe thing is a great example, right? I mean, humans for, pro- it was probably a 50-year-old solution, something like that, I'm guessing. Maybe sure, not, couldn't be much older. Yeah, and uh, the, the solution turns out to be to take away the, the human solution and let it go back to, uh, to the nature solution. The marathon monks running on these thin soles, they don't get 
leg and hip issues. Right. They run marathons weekly and they're fine, right? But then you take somebody in modern world and they're running on pavement in these heel striking shoes and it creates all these issues. And I think going back to what you were saying about the intro, right? He's got this line from Nietzsche, just because something doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense. So there were all these natural systems where it was like, oh, no, you know, we, we can do better. And then we try to mess with it and realize, OK, no, you know, mother of nature, you know, mother nature was doing something right here. Right? Trans fat is another great example. Yeah. We thought like, oh, no, fat's bad. We need to make a better fat. We create trans fat. Turns out this is, you know, literally killing people. It's illegal now. Yeah. It's being removed from all foods. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I grew up eating margin. I'm sure we all did. you yeah. like, yeah. 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 And you thought it was healthier. I'm using air quotes again. But yeah, you thought it was healthier. I mean, products like I can't believe it's not butter was marketed on the idea that butter was bad for yeah. you. And it's crazy how many people still believe that. <laughs> oh, so many people. Yeah. It's insane. Like that marketing industry where eggs are bad for you. Remember that whole thing? Yeah. Like, <laughs> or that, you know, your bread should be based on grains or your diet should be based on grains. Like, the food pyramid. The food pyramid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's all these crazy things where we, we and even going back to the ADHD example, right? It's like the solution is to like try to beat mother nature that, you know, we intelligent humans know better and we don't. We've never done a better job yeah. <laughs> in any of these natural systems that evolution has, yeah. right? And so this is kind of Taleb's argument here is that the solution isn't to add drugs or add complicated shoes or add any of these things. It's to remove them. It's to get yeah. back to a state of nature. Part of why the paleo diet, I think, is so popular yeah. because we're recognizing that everything that we have added to our diets is what's bad for us. Right. There's nothing 2,000 years old in our diet that's bad for us, right? Like even bread, right? If you right. can get yeah. pure there's bread. There's some great companies bread. out of New York actually right now that are working on creating basically ancient bread. Yeah, and I'm sure they're not just New York. I'm sure it's everywhere else too, but yeah. Like it's fermented. It's not, uh, they haven't like massively upped the gluten content. Like yeah. it's pretty good, yeah. right? But if you're only eating things that were invented in the last few hundred years, you're going to be unhealthy, right? <laughs> I mean, like I was just having this conversation with someone last night about uh, multivitamins. So I, I haven't been a big fan of multivitamins. Uh, my family took the like I used to take them when I was in high school. My family still takes them. And it's <laughs> somewhat of a point of contention where I think like the this, this is truly via negativa is like I don't think adding something like a multivitamin, there's not nearly enough proof that that actually does anything. And if you're eating a somewhat healthy diet, even if you're not eating that healthy, I still, I still think, you know, you get enough nutrients from your food. And then here's this is the naive interventionism part of it. I don't know if there have been long-term studies done of like how having, you know, 2000% of certain vitamins affects other aspects of your health. Like, does it reduce absorption of certain nutrients? Does it? Or is the quality of those vitamins as good as if you got it from your food? Well, we know that's not true. Oh, okay. So we, we know that there's something different about vitamins and nutrients obtained via food versus obtained in isolation. So the bioavailability of certain vitamins ingested, you know, in isolation versus from foods yep. is very different. Mm. So even if you're taking 2000, you know, ICUs or whatever, vitamin C, it's yep. not the same as getting that from an orange. Right. There's something with the orange, the fiber, the juice, all that is very different. Just as eating an orange is very different from drinking orange juice, right? Exactly. right? Yep. The fiber and the pulp and yep. the actual eating, something about the mastication affects how you digest it. Mm. Whereas, you know, eating a fruit is not so bad. Drinking fruit juice is really bad, right? It's like as bad as soda. But then right. even with fruit, right? 
we know that ancient fruits were not nearly as sweet right, exactly. as the ones we eat today. They've been, you know, strategically bred to become sweeter and sweeter and sweeter and sweeter because, you know, again, if you think of like a Paleolithic human, there are very few foods that are that dense in calories. And sweetness was a good indicator of calorie density. And so you wanted to eat all that you can. And if you didn't, if you weren't living near the sea and you couldn't get enough salt, then fructose was a good way to help your body retain water. It was a supplement for salt, right? So we have all these like, you know, built in biological urges to eat this fruit and this sugar. And now there's high fructose corn syrup and everything. So yeah, (laughs) this via negativa argument for food. I mean, I think it's so simple, right? It's like, if you want to eat healthy, just remove everything that we have done to mess with food. If you want to be physically fit, like remove everything we've done to mess with physical fitness, right? Stop sitting so much, like walk, get a standing desk, like walk places more instead of using the car, like the more you get back to a state of nature, I think the more human you feel, right? And, and even just like physical interaction versus being online. Yeah, oh, totally. Like removing yeah. social media and being social instead. Taking notifications off your phone. Like that, I think I think I learned that from you. That's actually. a huge one. That yeah. That's honestly, if there are life hacks, that's one of the biggest that's ones. The one. Only thing I have going on my phone is, uh, is text, but not like the loud noise notification and then calls. And that's about it. And I think calls also is partially because of what I do for work right now. But I think that'll change when I control my own schedule a little more (laughs) in the near future. That's one of those weird things where I think some people get scared of doing it, but then you also find that people almost respect you more yeah. if you're harder to get a hold of. <laughs> Actually, uh, Chaz told me when he was at PNG, one of the things that he did was he never set up his voicemail, so people yeah. couldn't leave his voice, leave him any voicemails. And he, that's what I do on my phone. No so, voicemail. And he found out that he basically found that people tend to solve their own problems when, <laughs> when they can't reach you. Well, that was so, yeah. <laughs> speaking of habits that made me a bad employee. Yeah. When I was working at Sumo, I would if somebody needed something or had a question and they messaged me on Slack about it, I'll usually wait an hour or two to respond. And in most cases, they would figure it out without me. Because <laughs> it, was, it was just sort of like, okay, like, you know, like, let's just see if they're procrastinating by asking someone a question, yeah. right? I think a lot of people do that. Right, or instead of Googling it, they're asking you or, yeah. I think like, uh, you know, keeping in the work environment for a second, like even just people who tend to be super, super busy, there's so much to be gained by just cutting stuff out of your schedule. Anything you can cut out, like unnecessary meetings, if you have the flexibility to do that, Um, not scheduling a meeting just for the sake of scheduling a meeting. I think these are easy, easy things you can take out. And then also just drilling down to like, what is your actual job? Like, what are you actually trying to do? Well, and the people Um, who are really productive are usually the ones who are doing that. They're not the ones fitting a ton of stuff in. They're the ones who are the best at saying no, at removing things. Something I started doing recently, and we've mentioned Taylor a lot in this episode, but he's another big anti-fragile fan. He wrote a good article about actually planning out your day roughly in terms of what you're going to work on and then going back at the end of it and filling things in. And I don't like having a rigid schedule, but that method of planning out what projects you'll be working on during certain time blocks, I find is very helpful for not looking for work and being artificially busy because then every time you go to work or you like start to work on something, you end up asking yourself, what am I going to log this on my calendar as? Oh, yeah. So you're kind of backwards fitting it Exactly. And yeah, if you can't justify it later, then you're going to be like, why was I doing that? Yeah. (laughs) And like, that's really helpful. But I mean, I think it's not just productivity stuff. Uh, I think dermatology Mm. is another good via negativa stuff. Uh, So the article will be out 
when I release this episode, but I mean, like, I mostly don't use soap anymore. And you don't use shampoo. And yeah, shampoo. And, yeah, and I haven't used shampoo yeah. for... And your hair looks awesome. I can Thank you. I can say that because I'm sitting here in person with you. You're yeah. not the first in-person <laughs> podcast guest to bring that up. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's weird. Like, I think shampoo and conditioner is a perfect example where, especially for men, yeah. right? If you stop using it... Okay, so I shouldn't say men. I should say anyone with short hair. If you stop using shampoo and conditioner, you'll go back to normal in a couple of weeks and then you never need it again. And that's pretty cool, yeah. right? Like you saved a lot of money. And then with soap, it's very similar, right? Like uh, I think some people worry about smell. Smell's really not much of a concern as long as you're eating well. They worry about dirtiness, you know, and most of us who are listening to this, like you spend all your time indoors right. or, you know, in a gym, go, go in the shower, get wet, <laughs> like rub your body with your hands or with a towel or something, but you don't need, you know, these irritants or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, really at the far end with a lot of the dermatology stuff, you get these kids who have acne, yep. probably from their diet and lifestyle choices. And they go to a dermatologist and they say, oh, you need to get on doxycycline, yep. an antibiotic, oh, right? Yeah. Absolutely terrible for their system yeah. because, you know, one, the doctor doesn't want to say change your diet because that's insufficient because the kid's going to be upset and the probably the mother or father is there looking over them, like expecting them to make their child happy exactly right. well and it's again it goes back to the interventionism exactly. it's like here's another product that you should use to that. fix this problem that comes from this other product right. right you you have acne because you're eating all this shitty food so right. instead of removing the shitty food take this you know drug that will destroy your immune system i mean and there's also a lot of work being done these days on the skin microbiome um and how we are effectively killing it right with a lot of the things that we use well it's like the antibacterial soap right yeah I use this example in the article, but it's like if you turned into an alley and you saw three cops standing down a robber and your solution to it was to toss in a hand grenade and kill all of them. <laughs> right? That's exactly that. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> there, was a, there was a really interesting UCSD study that maybe we can link to in the yeah. show notes that was around looking at the bacterial exposure that cafeteria workers were giving to their customers uh, yeah. when they were wearing gloves versus not wearing gloves. And crazy enough, the people who were actually wearing gloves were exposing people to more bacteria. You know, that than, makes sense, though. Yeah, because you're, it's a sterile environment. There's nothing for that bacteria to compete with. There's nothing fighting it. Yeah. Whereas on your hands, you definitely have bacteria going all over the place, right? And and they're going to use their hands anyway. Right. Like, there's this uh, myth that you can just wash off the bacteria and then they're gone. Right. But I, I think what's always funny to me is people who have the hand sanitizer in their bags. And what they forget is that you touched the hand sanitizer before and after you used it. And and you touched your bag and you probably touched your phone and your clothing and your face and your arms and everything else. And also not all bacteria is bad. Exactly. So, In fact, most of it's probably kind of important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you, you know, going back to the anti-fragile argument in the hermesis, exposing yourself to some cold viri and everything else is going to be good for your system, right? That's how vaccines work. And if your reaction is to wash your hands incessantly every time you meet someone, then you're never going to build up that immunity. So, I mean, going back to the via negativa, it's a really useful heuristic which is that whenever there's a problem, right, the first question shouldn't be what do I add to fix it, but maybe what do I remove that might be causing the problem or how do I take something away to make it better? In an odd way, it relates to like minimalism. Instead of like looking for a product to solve a problem, it's like what can I remove to solve this problem? Yeah. I think it's a really cool way to look at the world. And I think that's actually a really good way to wrap up on Via Negativa. So, We've talked on most of the 
main thoughts I think that we wanted to cover in the book. Yeah. Are there any closing thoughts that you had that you wanted to share related to this? Um, I think skin in the game is something that's mm. interesting. And Taleb, we're, we're plugging your uh, your upcoming book <laughs> called Skin in the Game. Well, it's funny because <laughs> in, in each of his books, he starts talking about themes in the next book. And I, I almost don't like to read those parts of the books uh, because I know yeah. his arguments and everything will be better yeah. when the next book comes that. out. But yeah. I mean, it's a really useful concept, right? In terms of who you take advice from. So yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think um, it's just something I've been thinking about a lot lately just because of the the world that I'm in. But, you know, you see it with... Uh, so basically, the concept of skin in the game is that, you know, you should be directly exposed to the upside or downside of the decisions. Yeah. And if you're not, you should not be making those decisions. You should not be the person who makes those those decisions or advising people. Or those people should know that you don't have skin in the game and just ignore you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you see this a lot with consulting, right? Where, you know, you can give some advice as a consultant and your client, if they follow your advice, is exposed to the risks of your advice. You are not. Right. You are going to get paid the same whether the advice works or it doesn't. Um, and that's assuming like, you know, a standard consulting relationship where it's paid by hour and or paid by, you know, a retainer or something like that. Uh, and you see it in politics as well. Right. Where uh, I think Taleb has recently wrote an article about the uh, like peace in the Middle East uh, thing with the Palestinians and Israelis. And he says, actually, the U.S. being involved in that solution, the peace process probably actually makes things worse because the U.S. is not living with the reality on the ground. Yeah, okay, in theory, the U.S. is this impartial third party. Really, we're not this impartial third party. But we're also just not exposed to any of the risks. So we don't have any skin in the game. If there is no peace, it doesn't really affect our lives here all that much. But it certainly affects the Palestinians' lives, and it certainly affects the Israelis' lives. So um, Taleb's argument is, you know, kind of like let them figure it out. And and his theory is that it would get figured out a lot quicker because they both have skin in the game. Um, I think it's just a really useful heuristic when you're hearing somebody give advice in any sense. It's, you know, how exposed are they to the advice that they're giving? And how much does it benefit them if you take yes. their advice, right? Like never ask a barber if you need a haircut, right? Right. Good, <laughs> yep. simple rules. And also uh, kind of a corollary of it is, is there any chance that they are now making advice because of past decisions, mm-hmm. right? Where and it's he talks about it kind of related to skin in the game here, but he makes that point where if you look at someone's portfolio and they're advising you to do the same thing as them, you also have to weigh that against is it like a sunk cost or yeah. you know do they have that skin in the game right, right. sometimes it's hard to make the the right. distinction, but I like the example he uses in the book too, where he talks about how bridge builders in ancient Rome. Mm-hmm would have to stand under the bridge as they drove chariots across it. I think it was like sleep for an evening or or a night or something like over the, (laughs) under the bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Or, I mean, uh, like even in medicine up until, you know, maybe the last 70, 60, 70 years, people who were coming up with new drugs would test it on themselves. Like, (laughs) yeah, I mean, you talk about a safety test, like, yeah, it better be safe if you're going to be taking it on yourself. So um, yeah, I mean, that's skin in the game right there. I mean, more than anything. No, it's definitely a useful, I mean, a useful tool for assessing like anyone you're taking advice from. Yeah. And I think this, uh, this is a whole separate podcast. Yeah. When he comes out with with skin in the game, we'll we'll cover it. But I mean, you even see it in in things like in corporate, right? Where you have maybe um, uh, CEOs who are basically optimizing for the next quarter over longer term because they're only, their skin in the game is only for the next quarter because that's when the bonus pays out on their option or whatever. So yeah, they're not incentivized for 20 years down the road. And so I think, yeah, this concept is really, really interesting. And, you know, I'm excited to see what uh, Taleb's next book. Well, I think that 
those are great thoughts to wrap up on. Yeah. I would strongly encourage anyone listening, if you enjoyed this conversation, and if you haven't read Anti-Fragile, go pick it up. Although, if you haven't enjoyed this conversation, yeah, yeah. go pick up Anti-Fragile. <laughs> and if you're still here two hours later, <laughs> having not enjoyed this conversation, <laughs> then props to you. But no, seriously, and it may also help to read Black Swan first. I find yeah. that's an easier introduction. Anti-Fragile gets a little more in the weeds. He also is a little bit more... We'll, we'll say egotistical <laughs> and anti-fragile than he is in Black Swan uh, in, in a lovable way. And yeah, I mean, either way, I would definitely encourage anyone listening to think about some of these ideas yeah. and see, you know, is there anywhere in your life that you are a turkey where you're exposed to fragilities that you hadn't thought of before? Is there a way to create more of an anti-fragile, you know, safer in that way life and keep some of these heuristics and ideas we've talked about with you as you're going through your day to day? Yeah, I think the turkey stuff and, you know, that that's a pretty deep thought experiment. I think the, the probably the very simple, you know, first step you can take is the small stressors. There's just, I mean, most of us live very, very comfortable lives. There's just some very easy things like Nat mentioned walking. That's such an easy one. You got a standing desk. Skipping breakfast. Skipping breakfast, fasting every now and then. Cold showers. Cold showers. Uh, I think Tim Ferriss on one of his episodes at one point was talking about how he uh, occasionally will eat like oatmeal and like ramen noodles for like a week. Uh, it's like based that's on a Seneca. More, that's more the stoic, yeah, yeah practicing. Poverty. Yeah, but that's still it's a small stressor, right? It basically stressing like income. Right? Yeah, exactly. So you're more comfortable if your income goes down. Um, you know, pick up a freelance project on the side. Uh, yeah, just like expose yourself to small stressors where you know even if the worst case is not going to kill you, and the best case is you get more used to the stressors and your body prepares itself and or your mind prepares itself for the next one. Definitely. And Neil, thank you so much for coming on again and bringing this delicious beer. Yeah, no problem. I'm sure that this will be a recurring thing for us in future episodes. So. Awesome. Looking forward to it. And I hope everybody listening enjoyed it. Go check out the book if you haven't, and we'll see you next time. See you, Nat. Cheers. All right. We hope that everybody listening enjoyed that episode of Made You Think. Hope it made you think about something. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Uh, couldn't resist. No, it had to be said. But as always, episode show notes and more are available at madeyouthinkpodcast.com. Definitely go check it out. Get the links to everything that we mentioned in the show. You can always hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Nat Eliason. And I'm at the Rail Neil S. So let us know what you thought of this episode and share it with a friend who you think might enjoy it. This podcast can only survive and grow with your help. And we would love it if you would let somebody else who you think might enjoy listening to these topics know about the show. Thanks, guys. See you next time.